Dad, something here. What? Oh my God, they got Amanda. Get under the bed. The next part is very important. They're going to take you. If you're looking for a ransom, I don't have money. But what I do have are a very particular set of skills. Skills that make me a nightmare for people like you. I will find you, and I will kill you. Good luck. Take it. Rated PG-13. necessarily know who you are i may not know what you want if you are looking for giveaways i can tell you that this podcast isn't yet making any money but what i do have are a very particular set of skills skills i've acquired over a very long career of being a wally like this (laughs) i was really hoping you were gonna do the voice (laughs) welcome back to the movie for two podcast i'm tim collins and with me is someone who'd savagely attacked the groin of a man who insisted on sharing a cab in paris danny lee (laughs) hell yes (laughs) so we're uh we're doing this movie right now because well we asked you guys our audience what you wanted next and this was among the suggestions great suggestion shout out to dodge george who you can find at dodge underscore george this was his suggestion mate if you can uh, get your friends and family to get around this podcast and follow us on instagram we'll do some of your other suggestions (laughs) There were a lot of them too. It's great. So there was also a little bit of a reason behind this choice though. We hadn't done a, what you maybe call a popcorn action flick to this point. We'd floated around some other things in the, in this uh, genre. We'd done Snatch, but that's a little bit more of a cult crime film. We'd also done Mad Max Fury Road, but that's got some pretty complex undertones, I think. And it sort mm. of pushes us out, pushes it out, sorry, of the, that sort of popcorn action flick genre. And so I thought it was time for something like this. Yeah. Definitely. So let's get into the the overview and then we'll get through all the segments from there. So Taken was released in Australia on the 14th of August, 2008. This is a movie about a retired CIA agent who is drawn back into action to save his daughter, who's been kidnapped while on a trip in Paris. It stars Liam Neeson, Maggie Grace, and I totally forgot about this, Holly Valance. (laughs) Yeah, she's pretty prominent in the start and the end and then nowhere in the middle, thank God. So this movie was directed by Pierre Morel. I think I've got that right. A French director who's essentially become known for this above pretty much everything. Mm. Um, This movie had a budget of $25 million and made 227, which makes this an absolute box box office behemoth. Sorry. (laughs) It has an IMDB score of, I just want to pause on this, 7.8 out of 10, which is insanely high for what is, you know, th- th- this is a sort of popcorn action flick, as I said it's before. Massive. Movies of this genre don't push into that territory no. very often. And Danny, is it reasonable to suggest that this movie essentially spawned an entire genre? Oh yeah, it definitely did. This started such a massive run of action movies, mostly about revenge. Yep. But the main theme of them was that they're all starring undeniably talented middle-age actors. Yes. <laughs> so other than the obvious, obvious ones being taken two, taken three, taken the TV series. <laughs> you have the Keanu Revenge for Killing My Dog action movie, which is also John Wick, John Wick 2, John Wick 3. We're definitely doing that at some point, by the way. <laughs> Such a good movie too. But then you have all the other ones, uh, Unknown, 
with Neeson. Yep. Uh, Walk Among the Tombstones yep. with Neeson. Nonstop, again, Neeson. Run All Night with Neeson. So he went on a massive run himself. Yep. <laughs> really revitalised his career. It became a little bit of a parody at, 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 yeah, at this point. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then you had other ones like The Equaliser with Denzel, which totally fits into this as well. And, uh, like, you know, other movies were similar to this plot before Taken came out because Denzel's other, which one's? Man that? on Fire is yes, the one you're thinking of. that's definitely what I'm thinking of. That was really similar, but this movie really raised the bar because it showed that you can also have an action hero who's an incredible actor and he can hit more than one gear. It's not just action gear. It's like emotion and you see all the side, different sides of a person. I read a, an interesting thing about Neeson in this particular movie. I thought there was a really good point when I was reading a review that, the review said that he had a really, really good focused anger or rage. Mm. And there's something about focus that I want to tap into a little bit here. I think that something about this movie that crossed boundaries. I think when this was developed, written and sort of in the planning, I think it probably had a very particular demographic in mind. I think that probably skewed towards males. And I think if you do sort of really dive into some of this, I think that you could probably find some issues with bits of it. It's very traditional ideas about men protecting families. Mm-hmm. It's also written and directed by some guys from France. And there are some parts of this which really do express some things that are a little bit uncomfortable about immigration mm-hmm. in, in yeah. Paris and France. But I think that the way that this movie has focus makes it, it it finds a way to totally expand beyond the demographic that it was probably aimed at. And I think that's why it became a huge box office success. I think it's got a clarity of purpose to this. There's a there's a brutalness in the simplicity of this. I think we discussed this briefly before we started recording. I think this movie's super tight. It's really, really concise. It's lean as well. Yeah. And there's a focus, as I said before, to Liam Neeson and his character of rage and anger. And I think of I think because of that. It was so incredibly impactful when it arrived. I mean, I described it to you before. It was like it's like a knife going in. It goes bang in out, <laughs> done, and done. Yeah. And as a result, I think that when this came along, it was like whoa. Yeah. And considering that the like the monologue, the most memorable part of the movie, is the trailer to the whole movie, and yet it doesn't spoil the movie. It's not like a comedy where all the best bits are in the trailer and you go, oh, I've seen it now. You've seen the whole movie if you've seen the trailer, but you really haven't. Are you saying that I didn't ruin the podcast with my <laughs> poor attempt at the monologue up front? <laughs> That's exactly what I'm saying. What a great compliment. So obviously our podcast is called Movie for Two. What about this movie in your eyes makes it a movie for two? Well, when I was trying to figure out why I enjoy this movie so much and what makes it a movie for two... I was also thinking about like the simplicity of the plot and the whole thing about, you know, you go in knowing what the plot is and it's not a negative thing, but it just hooks you in and you want to see this guy succeed. And in a lot of ways, it's just so relatable to, to be cheering on a guy who just wants justice at the end of the day. It's obviously appealed to a lot of people. So there's clearly something really universal in that. Yeah, I think that I came back to the same point when it came to Movie for Two. I, I came back to that that point of focus. And I think that that's what you're hitting onto as well. I, th- I don't think that this is a traditional Movie for Two, particularly in, in comparison to some of the others that we've done, in the sense that it's not a sort of terribly rewarding film thematically for mm. a sort of a large cross-section of society. This is not something that dives into complex issues and sort of explores them really, really artfully or cleverly. There's a brutality to the simpleness oh, of yeah. this. But I think that that focus changes things for people that are, that are watching this. I think that people appreciate a format or a premise that's 
delivered with precision and no messing around. Yeah. And I think that that goes back to why this had such cut through with so many dev- demographics. And I think this is why it's a move for two. You can both sit down and get into something that's so simple but so well delivered. Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it. And it's not like I want to say because I think the last three weeks we've had really short movies like this one, it's like the running time as well. And this is really short. Bang on 90 minutes. Yeah. And so, you know, we don't want to sit here and say, oh, a movie for two is just a really short movie because you can get in and get out. Like that's definitely not every time. But it is sometimes really useful to know going in that this is a really simple plot and you can just get in and get out. So that brings us to our first segment, which is perfection, imperfection. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we always start with perfection where we try to identify the things that for some reason or another in our eyes were perfect. Would you like to start? I think you should start. Okay, so the thing that I had with this when when I was watching it is that it's an uncommon beginning for an action movie. If you think of a lot of action movies, they tend to begin with the explosive action sequence up front and then you delve into the sort of the plot or the story sort of unfolds after that first set piece. Yeah, yeah. This doesn't. No, this has with the family man. Yeah, it has very little in the opening 15 minutes. And I think that they're watching this again. This is obviously, I think, maybe the third or fourth time that I've seen this. There's a way that they delay the inevitability of this Mm. that somehow seems to hold up to repeat viewings. And I was thinking about why they needed to do that. And I think it's because basically the first 15 minutes or even the first 20 minutes, I'd have to go back and see exactly when the whole thing ramps up. Yeah. But it kind of needs to rebel against its own title. Yeah, because you know what's coming. Exactly. Yeah. Sort of unlike sort of other sort of, you know, action flicks, you know, I was thinking about, you know, other things that like the Bourne uh, trilogy, something like Jack Reacher, the title doesn't tell you the whole movie. Yeah. Whereas this, you literally know exactly what's going to happen before <laughs> you sit down. Yeah. But even the Bourne movies, like even the taglines are designed to intrigue you and me, like what on earth is going on here? Exactly. Whereas with this, you know the whole thing going in, like straight away, but in the way that they delay the inevitability, somehow it still had me on suspense on like my third or fourth watch of this. I thought it was absolutely brilliant watching this again and being like, wow, they've they've still managed to hook me in here. Yeah. Well, you have to really want to root for this guy because you want to be – you you want to know that he's trying to be a good dad. Like that's the whole build-up is showing that, yes, he was absent for her childhood and he's now retired so that he can be close to her and spend time with her. If it went from he's still working and now his daughter's been kidnapped, you're not rooting for him quite as much because you're like, oh, well, he wasn't really there in the first place. So you like you have to see that build-up of him really trying to, you know, rectify what he did. I really like the way that you said – rooting for him quite as much there. There was almost like a bit of a like Southern American tone. <laughs> I heard myself saying it as well and I was like, what's another word? Rooting for him quite as much. <laughs> Sorry to any Americans who I've offended there. That wasn't that wasn't the intention of me. I'm more just taking the piss out of Danny. Yeah, I don't know why this movie's made me want to say that. <laughs> Have you got something that you want to hit on for perfection? Well, as we talked about the simplicity before, I was even thinking how like the action sequences are quite simple and straightforward. Yes, I and had this as well. That the hunt itself I would call elegant. Okay. Because it has that kind of like MacGyver quality where none of the detective work is really outlandish and it's really relatable because it just seems like problem solving. 
He's like, oh, I yeah. get the photo and then I go to the photo booth and I zoom in. Okay, I find the guy. Once I found the guy, I go to the next step. It's really sequential and it's not just like, oh, I'm going to call up my person with the weird like touchscreen thing that's completely unbelievable. It's it's just such a simple det- – he uses a business card for God's sake to get into the Albanian stronghold. There is a little bit of stuff that when it comes to sort of uh, – a little bit sort of unbelievable uh, intelligence stuff that yeah. I wanted to get to in a sec. But it's not too far-fetched. That's what I like about it. Yeah, I know what you mean. I, specifically on the action sequences, one of the things that I was sort of really drawn to by at this time watching around was the efficiency of them. Mm. And I was thinking about it to something else that I watched quite recently, which was that Six Underground uh, with oh, Ryan Reynolds yeah. and, and Michael Bay. That thing was crazy. Like a giant magnet that the whole boat turns into a magnet. It was mad. But (laughs) the thing about it was that like the opening action scene, for example, felt like it went for half an hour. Yeah. This, the action scenes are super, like super slick. Now, obviously you get that sort of juddery camera style that you get with anything where there's, you know, fights and chases and and all that sort of stuff. That's totally common ground in film and there's nothing revolutionary about this. Mm. What I thought was interesting was that the action sequences don't go for five, six, seven, eight minutes. No. There's a real efficiency to them. You go through them. And as you were saying before, it's sort of like, right, that bit's done, move on. Right, that bit's done, move on. And I think that there's something about this that lends itself to that really compact, lean, concise feeling to the whole movie that has allowed a lot of people to sort of almost view this as a sort of a benchmark for how to deliver like 90 minutes of enthralling action cinema. Yeah, I think – I've obviously watched a lot of action movies where you think everyone's dead and then they come back because every time he like killed everyone in a room, I expected someone to come bursting through just when it all sort of calmed down and it never happened because it's just like, okay, he's killed everyone in the room, right, moving on, next. And then he goes to the next step. And also I don't think guns even come out for quite a while, which is quite good for an action film. It sort of builds up to it. It's not just like, oh, here's my arsenal all like in the boot of my car. It's, you know, just a bit of hand combat and then what else is he used? I don't know, some daggers or something. But it's not just like shoot them all up. The only bit though where you do know what's coming mm. is the iconic scene of the movie. The the capture. The, t- the taken yes. scene yes. When, they're, when they're in the apartment. And yeah. I was thinking about this and – it, it goes back to that point that I was saying before about the the inevitability and somehow on repeat watches it holds up. I still found that scene kind of chilling. There's someone here. Our cousins are back. No. Oh my God, they got Amanda. What? What are you talking about? Kimmy, what's going on? Kim. <laughs> Oh, yeah. I still found it. Even on like, what what was it, third, fourth watch, I was like, I'm still a little bit creeped out by this. (laughs) There's something about the way that he's delivered, Mm -hmm. which is absolutely incredible. There's like, I think that maybe like her looking through the window into the other room Mm. is quite effective. It's blurry. It's blurry. The way that the music is playing in a sort of loud but sort of muted way because it's coming from the other end of the house. Her on the phone, you sort of know that it's all coming, but there's something about that. It's still chilling. It still holds up. And I felt that that, like, of, of all the scenes, I mean, that is the <laughs> iconic one. And then yeah. that's when he goes into that monologue. Oh, my God. His whole performance in this movie is perfect. It's so good. Really incredible. His facial expressions alone, he goes from, like, frustrated dad because you didn't call me when you were supposed to, to, 
all right, now I'm the protector and I'm getting out all my equipment to I, I'm terrified because I'm hearing my daughter getting taken and he just he goes through all of these expressions and the camera just holds on him. Like when he's listening to her being taken before he even opens with his monologue, it's just him. Yeah. So I, I was thinking about this as well. I mean, I think that's a really good point because I was like, is part of the the impact of this when it first arrived? Because I think one of the things that we need to emphasize is how like, whoa, when this first turned up, mm. it was a big deal when it first turned up. But now, you know, as you said before, it's created an entire <laughs> genre and you see a Liam Neeson movie and you essentially know what it is before you've seen it. As long as he's on the movie post, you're yeah. like, get it. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But We'd never seen him like this before. And so I was just sort of digging through. I was sort of like, I know a lot of the things he's been in, but I sort of didn't have a perfect picture of sort of the sequence of them, if you like. So I went digging through it, right? And so obviously he breaks out with Schindler's List. Mm -hmm. And then he's involved in some of the the Star Wars saga. He'd been part of the Gangs of New York uh, cast. He's obviously one of an ensemble cast in Love Actually. Mm-hmm. He's then a supporting act in Batman Begins. Yes, yeah, so I've forgotten about that completely. Yeah, so you know, some of these are some big movies, but at this point he's not sort of the guy in a huge blockbuster popcorn flick, Mm-mm. if you know what I mean. Um, he never carried it in that way that like Denzel's done. We mentioned him before a little bit too, or the way that Matt Damon has done. Yeah. Like We've mentioned him with the Bourne stuff. But – I think there's a sort of everyday man quality to him that is different to those guys. He sort of feels a little bit more like one of us than those guys do because those guys, in they're such mega stars. They're such a mega movie stars that you still picture them as those guys first in every character that they do. But then he then somehow manages to explode in an almost equal way to some of those things that we are talking about before with like Born and Man on Fire and uh, The Equalizer and, and, and yeah. these sorts of things. And I think because of that sort of unexpected nature of it, it's sort of why that this is such an iconic role and an iconic move. Because he still has that warmth about him. He plays an awkward dad in this in a lot of ways. Like when he's giving his daughter the karaoke machine, you're really like – heartstrings are going for him because it's just so kind of cute. And then the rich dad's giving her a <laughs> racehorse. <laughs> That's the – oh, God. It's, it's not even a pony. It's a racehorse. It's a proper horse. <laughs> oh, that bit drove me mad. That's just ridiculous. It's a good. That was a good uh, depiction of a separated family and the conundrums that go with that. Can I uh, uh, put forward a controversial take to you? Okay. And this ex- uh, sort of uh, expands upon that where I was saying before, there was a f- there's a few little sort of CIA intelligence things where it's sort of- Does a- this not belong in imperfection? No, because okay. I, this is a controversial take where I think it works. Oh, okay. So, you know, when he first finds out, obviously you, you get the taken scene and then he's on the, f- the phone to his CIA mate. Yes. Right. And he's like, plays her, a, sorry, plays him a sketchy recording mm-hmm. of the guy's voice on the phone. And the guy's like- yeah, that's Marco from, you know, whatever he's known for this, 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 and this. Yeah, you've got 96 hours to sort it out. We've got a whole bunch of intel on this. Like, there's no way you're getting that from, do you know what I mean? But, you just have to go along with it. But the thing is, is that I actually kind of think it works because if he has to go to Paris and then kind of walk around for five days showing a photo on the streets, you know, a la Home Alone New York style. <laughs> You know, I, I think the movie suffers from that time that's required, whereas I think that there is a little bit of movie bullshit that happens there. Mm-hmm. But I actually like it because what it does is it moves it along and it keeps the whole thing to this really, really tight, raw 90-minute package that it wouldn't be if he had to sort of do a whole bunch of 
really, really hard fact-finding what he got to Paris. Yeah, I was thinking the exact same thing about that 96-hour window that he's given. I love that as a device for being like, okay, there is a timeline on this thing. There's an urgency. I'd forgotten how he got to Paris in the first place. So, like, watching it this time, I was like, oh, God, that's going to be really hard for him to be sitting on a plane, you know, in coach, just, like, trying to get to Paris. I was like, oh, yeah, no, private jet, duh. <laughs> coach, you've got really American tonight. <laughs> We call it economy in Australia, Daddy. I don't know what's happened to me. I've been doing too much reading. Um, Have you got anything else I for do, perfection? I do. Uh, you kind of mentioned it earlier about the the music. I think this is a really quiet action film. It is a little bit, yeah. Because in a lot of the action sequences, there's like a general rumbling behind the action, but then the music builds at a point that's kind of halfway into the sequence, like when he's uh, escaping from the basement in St. Clair's house. It's there's no music. It's just kind of like the hissing of the pipes and the rumbling. And I know they're meant to be quiet or whatever, but it's just it's really nice because it makes the loud moments even more impactful. Yeah, I totally agree with that. There's a and it goes back to that point about efficiency to this. There's not this is not a, a film of total chaos. Mm. It's very precise, and I think that that's one of the reasons why people really appreciate this. Mm-hmm, totally. Have you got anything else before we get to imperfection? I have one more. Do you have any others? No, but you go. I was just going to say that the the revelation that the French cop is in on it, I think it's just enough of a twist to kind of keep it intriguing, but not so much that makes it complicated. Okay. Because when he when he's at uh, what's his name Jean Claude's house, yep. and he's having that dinner, I don't know. It's just a really it kind of breaks up the film in a nice way because there's this different conversation that he's having, and then when he shoots the wife in the arm, I actually gasped out loud. You did, and we've seen this before, and you still gasped. I just <gasps> it shocked me. So I just thought it's a good it's a good twist. So I want to get to imperfection, but before we do, time for a quick break. Hey guys, just a quick break to tell you about a special event we're planning here at the Movie for Two podcast. It goes a little something like... You know, you might have heard of it. James Bond, sound familiar? Well, we're going to be doing James Bond Week. The fifth and final Bond with Daniel Craig comes to cinemas in Australia on April 8th this year. And we're going to dive into the world of 007 like no other podcast. We're going to hit Casino Royale first, then follow up with Skyfall. And then we have a special podcast episode for the new one, No Time to Die, where we'll be joined by a special guest, Aussie cinema buff Nick Labarro. To stay up to date with that and everything we're doing for our ultra-creatively labelled Bond Week, head over to Instagram and follow us at Movie for Two Podcast, where we'll be updating everyone about our first ever special event and, well, everything else we do too. That's at Movie for Two Podcast, all one word. Right, that's all for now. Back to Taken. Right, we're back. Time for Imperfection, where we pick out things from a movie which, for one reason or another, we think are not so perfect. Can I start on this one? Yeah, go for it. This, of all movies, this is like the absolute classic of America's shot with really warm lens tones, <laughs> and then you've got cold, dangerous Europe. <laughs> and the way that that's depicted is like America's this like total safe haven from the world, and then Europe is this dark place full of human traffickers and drugs and oh. and, and exploitation and sex workers and... <laughs> It's, and it's amplified even more by the difference between the daughter when she's in America or when she's not in America. Like she's such a child. She's such a naive looking child when she's in America. Can I just say that we've been to the US 
and I find it considerably less safe than <laughs> Europe. <laughs> I completely agree. We've been in places in the US where we're like, a little bit shaky. I'm not, not, not so sure about this. Europe, I'll walk around there on my own fine. <laughs> I wouldn't, but yes, okay. I take your point. So that was my first thing. What have you got? I have uh, the fact that the St. Clair, who's the guy who's selling off the women, yep. it's just He's such a monster that it's unbelievable. Yeah, I had a I, I had a line about this. It's very over the top. Yeah. He has two sons and a daughter and can't understand why Brian Mills is going around trying to find his daughter. And then when he says, so this is one of my points that I have, when oh. he goes, sorry, I hope you can understand, it's all business. <laughs> Not only is it a shocking line, yes. it's like the worst delivered line in the movie by a country mile. Yes. It is <laughs> Awful. Yeah. His character, it's almost like they just needed to plonk a generic baddie in there and it's not a developed bad guy whatsoever. I have some other questions about like how are they like sort of clubs like this with people that seem like they're from very prestige worlds who are running these huge underground operations and like no one knows about it? No, I know. It's just a whole bizarre, that whole house ooh, it just gives me the chills. On a slightly lighter note. <laughs> You know when he uh, he first arrives in Paris and he goes to the apartment where they were taken from and he wants to sort of do some, you know. Recon. Scene, yeah, scene of the crime. Uh, is that how I say it? Scene of the crime? Yeah, that's how I say it. <laughs> I'm not struggling at all. And, he, and so he's standing at the door and he waits for someone else to come out before he goes in. He's carrying an unreasonably large bag of groceries and baguettes. Particularly celery. Lots of celery leaves poking out the top And some there. exquisite baguettes. And I think he's chosen too many greens. I think he's got several greens too many. All he needs is a tiny little bag. You know how he's got 90... 90- cover his face. Yeah, but you know how he's got 96 hours? He's just wasted half an hour at the shop. <laughs> Maybe he just stole them. Maybe he just walked past, grabbed it as he went, and then he didn't waste a single second. I'm not buying it. <laughs> What else have you got? That's such an odd observation. Well, I was going to ask you if you think that the mum is too blasé about letting her 17-year-old daughter fly to Paris on but, her own, or basically on her own. You can kind of get it. She's just way too casual about the whole thing. Yeah, I mean, I think that- Maybe that's now that we know the ending. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. I mean, I need to stress that this is not what Paris is like. <laughs> did you also- I did a little bit of background reading on this, and yeah. Liam Neeson said that- in the sort of the months and years after this movie, yeah. he was getting people and, you know, this, a few American people <laughs> coming up to him and saying, thanks for providing the warnings on like, oh, what it's Oh, no, you're joking. He said this and he had to go out of his way to explain that Europe and Paris is not actually like this. Oh, and I- it is totally safe. And he actually had to go through a process of encouraging people to go and explore places outside of and not all Albanians are sex traffickers. I know. <laughs> this is like when we did the thing on Love Actually where we spoke about the way that Portuguese people are depicted yes, in Love Actually. Yes, How do you think the Albanians feel about oh, this? Oh, they'll be fuming, that's yeah. for sure. <laughs> I did get an update on that Portuguese situation, by the way. Yeah, so how did that go? Um, uh, so yes, of course, we're not very happy with how we're depicted, but it's, it's a known thing that that's how southern France, I think, can – Depicts. I would have re- I would have remembered this probably if I knew this was going to come up. Yeah. In other words, <laughs> you it's went, a known thing. You went and spoke to a friend of yours, mm-hmm. a close friend of yours, who is Portuguese, mm-hmm. who you met in London, mm-hmm. and uh, she essentially confirmed that not overly pleased with the way that Portuguese uh, are depicted in that movie. Yeah, but, but not could, surprised. But yeah, not surprised, and could kind of understand where that sort of idea comes from. Mm-hmm. Mm. What else have you got for imperfection for Taken? 
Um, are you buying also <laughs> that the Albanians believe that this very American-looking Liam Neeson is called Jean-Claude? Yes. And then he's, <laughs> he's got a business card with yes. it. And then, and, and then he talks in this full-blown American accent. Yes. Obviously, the thing is, is that Liam Neeson is Northern Irish. But yes. Yeah. It's like yeah, he walks into this he's building. He's French. I'm sorry, but if you're a, like a gang of people who are intelligent enough <laughs> – and I'm not, not saying they're good guys, yeah, but yeah, they're yeah. still intelligent enough to oversee a sort of like pan-European crime network. Mm-hmm. You're not sort of fooled by a guy who's got a French name on like a French business card with like the French intelligence agency on it who speaks in full-blown American tones. Yes. Yeah. No, I didn't buy that at all. And I've got this on my notes right in front of me. <laughs> what else have you got? So I had, you know, when it gets to the very end. This was my last thing of imperfection, but I really, I was like, I almost laughed out loud. So, you know, when it gets to the very end uh-huh. and he gets onto the boat. Yes. Because that's where his daughter is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the 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 sort of, the guy that's been in the club is sort of like, oh, your highness or whatever he calls. Yeah. And he, he's talking to the, the ultimate sort of bad guy who's on the boat that's bought his daughter. I think he's a sheik or something like that. Why does the ultimate bad guy look weirdly like Jabba the Hutt? <laughs> He's on the bed. He's lounging. He's on the bed, sort of on his side in this huge robe, but actually looks like Jabba the Hutt in the sense that he is either a sort of large pear placed on the ground (laughs) or looks, you know, a little bit like a sort of a poo emoji placed on the bed. It's like that where I'm like, this movie is not taking itself all that seriously. That's did, for sure. Did you think there's a little re- resemblance? Yeah, there? I agree. I completely agree. And then when he just holds the knife to her throat, just like, oh, you have no other tactic other than that. It was bad, wasn't it? Yeah, it was really bad. When you said the end, I thought you were going to be. I thought you were talking about the end end because I also have a bit of a problem with that. Yeah, what is that? I just don't like it. Yeah, the ending of just like turning up on Holly Valance's doorstep as a surprise. How oh, are you going to be a singer now? Is a bit like. Oh, okay. It's over. All right. Cool. Yeah. I mean. No addressing the PTSD she's probably got. No talking about the dead friend. Nothing. Yeah. I actually hadn't thought of that, to be honest with you. (laughs) I sort of just get to the end of it and it's sort of like, it's kind of like those two minutes sort of, you know, tacked on to the end that sort of almost don't even register with me. Yeah. I kind of just think up to the end of the boat scene and then that's the movie. (laughs) Credits roll. (laughs) Have you got anything else before we move on? that's all I got. Okay, so I want to move on to our next segment, which is Lingo Bingo, which as uh, regular listeners will know, we've been struggling with a little bit of like <laughs> what we basically have to do is we have to hit three things for bingo and those three things are all related to language. It is lines and phrases that have entered everyday language, killer dialogue and lovable jargon. I have slightly changed the order here mm-hmm. for a particular reason because we have struggled particularly in this segment with lines and phrases that have entered everyday language. Right now, we can hit one. Oh, thank God. <laughs> the, mono- the monologue yes. has become one of those things, even though it's entered everyday language in a parody sense because mm-hmm. it's been in like Family Guy and all sorts of stuff, it still counts. Yes, a particular set of skills. He gets – I was watching videos before. He gets asked to like put that on people's voicemails all the time. Does he? He was on the Jimmy Kimmel show and a guy in the audience actually said um, – he's. He's like asked him to do something for him and he's like, oh, do you want me to like, I don't know, sign an autograph or something like that? And the guy's like, no, can you threaten me? <laughs> <laughs> so they dim the lights and he threatens him. He's like, what's your name? And he does the whole thing at him. But he's like, I don't really remember all the words. So, yeah, it's definitely entered everyday language. So we get a, a tick there. Mm-hmm. So we hit, uh, well, you know, we're one out of three on our way to bingo. Yeah. 
And then the whole thing falls apart. Yeah. There is no killer dialogue in this it's whatsoever. Just monologues. Yeah. The killer dialogue that we've had in other movies has been either incredibly witty, mm-hmm. like really sort of like cutting lines that sort of like dissect through a topic, mm-hmm. something that's really funny, like <laughs> hilarious that we've laughed at. There is no killer dialogue here whatsoever because no. there's no real exchanges is the other thing. It's like to have dialogue, you kind of need exchanges in a way. Yeah. Like it can't just be otherwise, you know, it's what we said, they're, they're monologues, it's yeah. not dialogues. Um so we don't really hit that point. And then lovable jargon, nothing. Nothing at all. One out of three. That's awful. Yeah. So that's uh, this is our 10th movie so far. <laughs> and so far we're one, one out of ten. One for ten. Hmm, all right. I mean, it is meant to be difficult. Yeah. Yeah. No. Moving on. Yeah, moving on. <laughs> so our next segment is your awesomely named one, which is called... Name That Bitch. Just a super quick overview. I'll give it. It's basically out of How I Met Your Mother, where Lily points to a uh, bunch of family photos where Ted has brought a whole bunch of his previous dates. And she essentially points to them because Ted's forgotten who all they are, (laughs) points to them and says, name that bitch. (laughs) So what we do here is we essentially pick out someone who is a little bit obscure in the film, uh, maybe a supporting role, and basically ask... Who is that person? Do you recognise them? And what else have they been in? Mm-hmm. I've got a little hunch we might have gone the same. Oh. This is a hard movie to do it because it you've got some big name international stars and then some much smaller name sort of, uh, you know, sort of supporting roles that you and I, you know, it's sort of not everyday stuff that you see them in. Yeah. What have you got? Uh, Marco. Yes, that's who I have. <laughs> <laughs> yes. This is the only interesting one. That yeah, I so I, but I did a lot of research. I was going through the whole IMDb cast. I was oh. going through one after another. Do you want to tell the audience where he's from? Do you want to pronounce his name? So can I pronounce what he is in the movie that I think that you're referencing? Yes, of course. Is it Antonin Dolohov? Yes, I think so. I think that's right. So he's one of the Death Eaters in Harry Potter. Yes. He's in two of the Harry Potter movies and he's one who attacks Hermione on Tottenham Court Road. Right. In the cafe. See, I'm not overly familiar with the Harry Potter movies, to be honest with you, but I, I thought that that was a uh, one that jumped off the page when I was doing my background research. I had a feeling that we were going to go with the same person. Yeah, it was, a, it, was a, it was a really good one, though. The actor's name is Arben Bajaktaraj. Bajaktaraj. We'll get in touch with the actor and he can come and explain <laughs> for us. Bajaktaraj. Yes. Okay. Okay, so moving on. I feel bad when I can't pronounce people's names. I know, but some of these things are challenging. All right, moving on. Moving on to our next segment, which is who could you be mates with? So if you were to take someone out of this movie and plonk them into the real world, who could you be mates with and why, Danny? It has to be Brian. Oh, I went different. Yeah. Oh, but it has to be him. He's just, he saves the whole day. He's so, oh God, he's the protector. You need him in every situation possible. If I ever become famous, there you go. Yeah, I mean, his moves when he protects Holly Valance oh, in the concert at the beginning. So the, good. The guy's running at her with the knife and he mm-hmm. comes in. Oh. And he's retired. Oh, no, there's some mean moves <laughs> going on there, isn't there? <laughs> so, yeah, he's, he's definitely going to be my mate. So I think that's the obvious choice, obviously, because he provides a lot of protection. He seems like a, a very respectable Lovely. guy, mm-hmm. you know, looks after his family, all those sorts of things, some mean skills, you know, and all of that. That's the obvious one. As always, I went a little bit silly. <laughs> I went with Jean-Claude. Oh, for God's sake. Who's the bad guy? Now, I just want to explain this. <sighs> he is an arsehole, yes. But he's, he's only an arsehole if you're not friends with him. <sighs> so here's the thing. He's the head of the Paris police or the head of the intelligence agency. That's not really – I think it's the intelligence agency that's there because that's how they dealt with before. Mm-hmm. But if you're friends with him and you're on his side, he's a ripper. He lets all sorts of stuff go. <laughs> He might find ways for us to soar to the top of the podcast rankings. 
He might find ways for us to generate a whole bunch of podcast revenue. But if you're going to go for someone who's going to give you that and obviously has a lot of money, you're better off going for the the stepfather. Yeah. I didn't think of that. Yeah. That's the much more. Yeah, he might have just loaned me the money. Exactly. Yeah, or given me a horse. Rather than you knowing that your money came from, or he, I don't know if he knows where his money's coming from, but yeah. Yeah, actually, you've really ruined my point there. <laughs> Disappointed with that. You can't go for the guy that supports the sex trade. <laughs> so that brings us to our final segment, which is prequel, sequel, or spin-off. So basically, if one of these were to come along, what would you want to see now? <laughs> one of I these. Need, I need to emphasise that there have been two sequels and about 15 spin-offs already. <laughs> so, and a TV series. Do you have anything? Well, before I knew that there was a TV series, I was going to say that I predict that in five years' time when the CGI that they used in like the Irishman to unage people gets better, you can, can't you imagine like a Liam Neeson TV series with him? <laughs> <laughs> But doesn't that end up awkward, like, you know, in the, in the Irishman where, like, Robert De Niro's sort of, like, kicking a guy on the curb and he genuinely looks like a 75-year-old man in a fight? That's why I said in five years when the technology gets a little bit better. <laughs> but then I read the synopsis of the TV show and I actually don't want to watch it at all. It's yeah. just, it's so overdone. I don't think there is really any room for a genuinely good sequel or spin-off or, or prequel, prequel at all for this. So, as usual, be, if, you know, in spite of that... <laughs> I found something. Yeah. It's it's not, you know, it's not going to be a household movie. Okay. It's not it's not going to be a household name, sorry. And it's not going to be something that Stan or Netflix are going to pick me up on, which is, you know, I have come up with some good pictures in some previous episodes of you this. Yeah, thank God we're recording it. But so I went with uh, you know, you know Holly Valance is a singer. Oh, you're not. <laughs> okay. Could you do a spin-off where she actually has to prove she can sing? <laughs> I, know, I know she was a pop star, but so I went back and looked at her. Name a song. So her, her song, So I went back and looked at her discography mm-hmm. uh, and I went back and looked at uh, her number one song, which was that Kiss Kiss song. Oh, of course to, it was. In, in 2002. So we're talking, you know, the best part of 20 years ago now. Oof. Now, you know, it was in that era when most music videos were essentially about, you know, quite attractive girls doing a lot of dancing and not a lot of singing. Is she just in a sheet or something? Uh, a, a, no. Maybe at one point in it. Maybe that's Kylie Minogue. But she's in a – yeah, no, that's a Kylie Minogue one. Mm. Yeah, same era. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I'm not sure she can actually sing. Oh, so her playing, a, her a, playing singer. A, a, a singer or a big global rock star. Six years after her top hit as well. Yeah, I'd, I'd kind of, you know, let's have a spin off and see if she can actually do it. <laughs> I did. I found a good one, but I'm stealing it, borrowing it from the Kaminsky method. Okay. You remember yeah. the show we watched? I love that show. So in that show, Elliot Gould <laughs> pitches a movie because he's like, Liam Neeson's getting a whole lot of work from uh, this Taken thing. I've got a script that I've written and it's called One Foot in the Grave. <laughs> <laughs> Where he plays a retired CIA agent that takes his grandchildren <laughs> to Disneyland, where unbeknownst to him, his enemies lie in wait. Wow, <laughs> that's gold. I mean, it would get three point four out of on IMDb, but I'd probably still watch that. I'd watch that, yeah. So I think there's enough out there in this genre. We don't need to make up any new ones. Well, maybe Stan haven't seen some of the Kaminsky method because remember the Kaminsky <laughs> method is on Netflix, and we shouldn't. You know, maybe we can pitch it to them and not the other. Yeah. <laughs> Danny, that's all we've got time for. Thank oh, you. So good. 
we're going to be putting up some uh, some episodes with some increasing regularity over the next few weeks. We're going to be aiming for you know, at least sort of three in a two-week uh, stretch. Don't be too specific. <laughs> you know, we've got to keep the listeners encouraged. Until then, check us out on Instagram at Movie for Two Podcast and follow us while you're there. And if you've enjoyed the pod so far, leave us a rating and a review on Apple. It really helps the podcast. That's all for now. You've been listening to the Movie for Two Podcast. Until next time. <laughs>